Welcome to the Mind Tales podcast. We are a mental health mobile application transforming your emotional well-being with accessible online counseling, life coaching, and wellness games. We're reviving our podcast series and kickstarting it off with a celebration for World Mental Health Day, which is October 10th. This is an exclusive special episode with venture capitalist and serial entrepreneur Brad Feld. Stay tuned for more. Brad, thank you so much for joining us today. It's real pleasure to be chatting with you. And for those who are meeting Brad for the first time, Brad has been an investor and entrepreneur for more than 30 years. Currently, he manages the Foundry Group, a venture capital firm focused on early stage tech investments. Prior to that, he co-founded Mobius Ventures, Intensity Ventures, and Techstars. Brad is on the chair of several advisory boards, pushing for the presentation of women in tech, social impact initiatives, and more. We couldn't be happier to have you with us today to chat about entrepreneurship, building great startup communities, mental health, and the future of telehealth. So Brad, you have an insightful perspective on being both an entrepreneur and venture capitalist. So tell us about how did your entrepreneurial journey start and what was your main drive? Well, it started when I was a teenager. Um, my father was a doctor, my mother was an artist. And as a doctor, my father had his own business. It ended up being a fairly sizable medical practice. Uh, there were four partners and they probably had about 50 employees at some point. And so I was always kind of curious around what he was doing. And he really ran his medical, even though he's a doctor, he ran the medical practice as a business. On the other side, my mother as an artist was very creative. Mm -hmm. um, and when we were kids, uh, she worked full time as an artist. So between nine and five, she wasn't available to us, even if she was in the house wandering around the kitchen. She was not, we were not allowed to talk to her um, because she was working. Mm -hmm. And so I was always kind of intrigued, you know, with this creativity on one side, the discipline around doing the work and being creative. And on the other side, sort of the structure of things. Um, I got interested in computers uh, relatively young. Uh, and this was in the late 70s, early 80s. And um, my dad, when it must have been 79, so you have to sort of teleport back to that time period, maybe it was 1980, had a patient who had been a successful entrepreneur and with his son had created a product for the Apple II computer. Mm -hmm. You have to time travel way back to the Apple II. And it was they basically created the metaphor that we would use today would be it was Siri for the Apple II computer. Okay. Now, really, it was called a voice entry terminal. The product was actually called the VET, V-E-T-20. And you put this headset on with the big speaker and you train the Apple II to recognize your speech. And the way you trained it, it could understand up to 40 words. And you had to speak each word about a dozen times. And then it knew how to recognize your speech. Couldn't recognize anybody else's, just yours. But then you mm -hmm. could talk into the computer. Totally fascinated with that. And they had a business. Uh, it was about a 45 minute drive from my house. And about once a month, we'd go over, my dad and I would go over and we'd spend lunch and I'd see what they were doing. I'd see what the engineers were doing, what they were working on. I'd see what the business was working on. And this guy, Gene Scott, would talk to me about 
the business and his son, Brian, who is the, I, I don't remember what one was the CEO and was the president, you know, who was probably in his thirties at the time, sort of really embraced me and allowed me to be and understand what they were doing. So that really sort of sparked it for me. Um, and then I had two other experiences the summer of my junior year of high school. So between 11th and 12th grade, um, another patient of my father's uh, introduced me to someone uh, who ran a business in London or ran the London office of a business based in New Hampshire called Centronics. And probably people on this podcast have never heard of Centronics, but they're a very important company because they invented what was called the parallel printer port. It used to be called the Centronics port. So it was a way you connected a printer to your computer and as well before USB cables and things like that. So I went over to the UK office and spent the summer in London working in South Kensington and living in Northfields, which for a 16-year-old boy was kind of amazing. Um, I didn't know anybody, so I made a bunch of friends and sort of got a sense of what it was like to live in London. And I wrote software on the Apple II computer for creating character sets. And the issue here was these were dot matrix printers. So they had a little matrix head that had a certain number of pins horizontally and a certain number of pins vertically. And that's how it printed a letter, but you had to design each character, the font. And the way they did it was on graph paper. So they literally had a piece of paper and they drew circles on the piece of paper and erased them and got them the way they wanted and then manually calculated the hexadecimal codes to then program into the chip. Very laborious process. And if you want to change it, sort of a nightmare. And I wrote a piece of software over that summer. So on an Apple II computer, you could literally move dots around on a screen, make your character set, press a button and have it spit out um, uh, you know, what you then had to put into the chip. So that was another experience where this was an entrepreneurial company. It was growing very quickly. And so I got the sense of it and had a couple of mentors there. And then the last experience that was the defining experience for me was um, the, the, my last, uh, my, my summer between uh, high school and college, trying to get the dates right. Mm -hmm. uh, I had another patient of my dad got me another job, this time with a husband and wife company. I was their first employee. And they wrote software for the IBM PC that had just come out um, for oil and gas analysis. So I wrote two products. One was called PC Log, which did log analysis, which pre these things on these, you know, long, anybody that knows uh, oil exploration, it generates a bunch of data on a graph, but then people manually were calculating what was going on. Instead, you just sort of fed the data into my program, and my program then gave you a bunch of analysis. And I wrote a product called PC Economics, which did economic analysis forecasting of how a well would produce based on a bunch of different variables, including you know price of oil and projected price and costs and a bunch of characteristics about the well. I got paid 10 bucks an hour. So I learned pretty quickly that if I worked 80 hours a week, I got paid twice as much as if I worked 40 hours a week. Um, they didn't have the concept of equity, but it was the oil and gas industry. So they paid me a 5% royalty on all the software that I wrote. So uh, I went to college and I was working part-time for them. So I still got paid for the time I spent. But I, once a month, I get a royalty check. And sometimes I get $1,000 and sometimes I get $2,500, just totally based on the software they sold. Nothing to do with the work that I was doing. 
One month, I got a check for a little bit over $10,000. It was an amazing amount to get as a 17-year-old in college. And I, I, we had a Chinese restaurant across the street. And uh, I took my whole fraternity out to the Chinese restaurant for, uh, for dinner. And afterwards, I still had like $8,000 left. Like it was, it was this sort of thing. So those were the formative events where I didn't really, I mean, I had a job, but my job was really in these entrepreneurial contexts with these people who are creating their own business out of nothing. And it was just wired into me from the beginning. And from then, so how then your journey evolved into the venture capital world? I went to college. Um, I started a couple of businesses while I was in college. One when I was a freshman, one when I was a sophomore, they both failed. And um, it was a powerful experience because it was the experience of you know having an idea, getting things going. This was well before venture capital was a thing. So we didn't really raise any money. In one case, one of you know, the, the, the guy, Gene Scott, who I mentioned earlier, gave us $10,000 as an investment so that we could buy some computers. And, you know, we were all going to college. So it was a part-time experience, not a full-time experience. But um, each of those businesses uh, eventually failed for different reasons. Along the way, uh, I, I then started a company, uh, which was my first company, not very creatively named. I named it Feld Technologies. And one of my, you know, one of my lessons and rules is never name the company after yourself because when people have problems, they call for Mr. Feld, not for something else, even if you had nothing to do with the problem. And uh, I just started doing software consulting on PCs in the mid mid-1980s, back when it was really hard to do anything productive on a PC and certainly networking them together and writing any kind of real sort of business software for them it was very nascent. And uh, I graduated college. Uh, I had a partner join me, my best friend in college, a guy named Dave Jilk. Uh, and that relationship, it's powerful. It's, we're still extremely close friends. We have a book coming out next week. Uh, that's the next book uh, that I've written called The Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche. And uh, uh, Dave and I did it together. So like we just started the business. We didn't know anything. We didn't raise any money. Um, but we learned sort of how to get a business going. We focused on our customer. We realized we had to actually make money because we mm -hmm. had to like pay rent each month. And, you know, even if we didn't have very big expenses, we still had some expenses. And we built that business over seven years, uh, grew to be a couple million dollar a year business that was very profitable. Uh, and then in 1993, we were randomly approached by a public company uh, who ultimately acquired our business. And I'd never really thought about selling the business. So I didn't have a plan for an exit strategy. I was very indecisive. Um, Dave and I would joke that on uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I wanted to sell. On Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, I didn't want to sell. And on Sunday, I rested. And I just sort of vacillated back and forth about what to do for about six months. And we eventually sold the company. And that was transformative for me. That, that changed my life for many reasons. One was you know, I had a successful exit under my belt. I now had, I had, I, I've always had more, uh, more money than I needed because that business was very profitable. So we were taking a decent amount of money out. So even, you know, in my young early twenties, I had a decent amount of money. Of course, in college, I had these royalties from the software that I'd written. Um, but now I had some financial resources. But the most important part of that experience was a guy named Len Fassler. 
Len was the co-chairman of the company that bought mine. He was partners with a guy named Jerry Pock, who's also still a very close friend and had a huge impact on me. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, Len took me under his wing and really Len and Jerry did, but Len especially. And I think they just liked me. I think I was a precocious young, you know, mid twenties, Boston based, you know, MIT taught entrepreneur. So, you know, they, they figured I was smart, had a lot of energy. I worked really hard. I knew nothing about doing deals. I didn't know anything about investing. I didn't know anything about buying or selling companies. Um, selling my first company was the first time I'd ever been involved in a deal. And uh, Len basically just got me involved in all the deals they were doing. And they bought about uh, 40 companies in a three-year period and then sold their public company to GE Capital. So sort of along the way, I got very immersed in all of this deal activity. I also started making angel investments with my own money. So I've made a couple of million bucks and I kind of figured I was in my mid twenties and figured eh, if I invest this money and I lose it all, I can just go make money again. Like what's the big deal. And, um, you know, sort of had the confidence of that from that first experience. And I told my wife, Amy, that, uh, we would never get below a hundred thousand dollars in the bank. So our safety net was to have a hundred thousand dollars. And I remember having to tell Amy that I had just invested in another company and we now had under $100,000 in the bank. I mean, I just loved investing in companies. I made a lot. I made about an investment a month mm -hmm. as, a, as a, what today would be called a pre-seed investor. I was writing off in the first $25,000 or $50,000 check into these companies. And I, I, in hindsight, I learned a very powerful lesson that's been very relevant in venture is I learned the difference between zero times my money and 100 times my money. Um, three of the 40 or so investments that I made in that in the three-year time period returned over 100 times my money each. And as a result of that, I realized that every other company I invested in could be a zero. Mm -hmm. And I was still way ahead. And it turned out of the 40 or so investments, about 20 of them were zeros. 20 of them, I mean, they tried, but they didn't succeed. And of the remaining 17, their returns varied from, you know, half of my money back to three or four or five or 10 times my money back in a few cases, maybe one case, 25 times my money, money back. But those 100, 100 times or more were the real, the real outcomes that made this portfolio that I created uh, really successful. I think, I think in the end, that those 40 companies were about five times my money uh, across all the money that I invested. And that really led me to venture capital. One day I woke up and I had become part of a VC firm as, a, as a, somebody hunting for deals. It was by this uh, relatively little known company in Japan called SoftBank. And in the mid nineties, nobody knew of SoftBank. They had just started to buy companies in the US and there was a team that worked for SoftBank and they recruited a group of us to be um, affiliates. And, and the four affiliates were me, Fred Wilson, who now runs USV, a guy named Jerry Colonna, who with Fred became partners in an extremely successful New York City firm called Flatiron Partners in the, in the 90s. Jerry today runs a coaching business called Reboot that's probably the best CEO coaching firm in the world. And then another very successful investor and, and friend, a guy named Rich Levendoff. And, you know, the four of us just kind of did our own thing with SoftBank. And then one day, uh, SoftBank essentially ran out of money to make new investments. And so a group of us, three people from SoftBank plus me, started a new firm. And that firm was sponsored by SoftBank. They gave us a little bit of initial capital. 
uh, $13 million. And over the course of a year, the four of us went out and raised a $300 million venture fund that was originally called SoftBank Technology Ventures. Um, and eventually, long story and history to it became Mobius Venture Capital. But that was really how I got started. It was very accidental. It wasn't deliberate. But it was this path from being uh, an, an entrepreneur who had some things that didn't work very early, learned from it, kept going, had a company that I ran for seven years that you know, I really learned how to run a business. And then that business got acquired. I learned an enormous amount from Len, who I then continued on and did several other businesses with a few that were successful and a few that weren't. Uh, and then one day I woke up and I was working with a venture capital firm that I hadn't really planned to do it. I had never really thought about it. And off it went. So it wasn't a career planning so much, if you look at that mm -hmm. from that frame of reference. It was, but it was a deliberate series of steps in hindsight. I couldn't have told you what those steps were when I was making them, but they're logical when I reflect on them. Thanks for sharing this, Brad. It's fascinating to see how you become a venture capitalist. Um, and as a venture capitalist, you've probably seen a thousand startups throughout your career. Uh, what do you think are the biggest mistakes the first time entrepreneurs make? A couple. One is, um, and I'm I'm uh, I'm old now. I'm in my mid fifties, so uh, I was certainly uh, made this mistake in my first couple of companies. Is believing that there are no existing ways of doing things that work. So viewing that every single element of what you're doing, uh, you need to figure out yourself because the established ways of doing things simply don't work. That is true for many things, but the power of a really successful business is to pick one thing that you're fundamentally changing and focus all your energy on that fundamental change and having less of a chaos around the other things. So a lot of entrepreneurs simply, you know, look at it and say, well, I'm just going to reinvent everything about how a business works and what I do. And what you end up doing is you dilute um, your focus. You end up having to spend a lot of time on a lot of different things, many of which don't matter or, or have, even if they matter, they matter very little compared to that part of the business, that part of the industry, that part of the product, that part of the technology that's going to fundamentally change things. So it's not that you only have to have one thing that you're disrupting or that you're trying to change, but limiting it and accepting or acknowledging that there are plenty of things that work just fine. The second mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make is they don't try to learn. The best entrepreneurs, especially first-time entrepreneurs, but the best entrepreneurs are always learning. And they learn through lots of different things. Sometimes you learn through experience but you learn through other people's experience. So the great entrepreneurs, especially early ones, surround themselves with mentors. And instead of having to go learn the lesson, they aggressively interrogate the mentors mm -hmm. to try to learn the lessons around the things they're facing. The best mentors don't tell the entrepreneurs what to do. Do this, do that. That's not a mentor, that's a boss. The best mentors say, in my experience, when I tried to do this, this happened. In my experience, that thing you're doing, here's what happened to me when I tried to do it. Could be good, could be bad. And if an entrepreneur is not 
aggressively building a network of those kind of mentors and constantly getting that kind of information from those kind of mentors, um, progress often is a lot slower and you'll make a lot of mistakes that you wouldn't have to otherwise make. The last, uh, and I, I use a word deliberately here. Um, I know a lot of first-time entrepreneurs who are very excited about the idea of entrepreneurship and of starting a company, but are not obsessed with the thing they are doing. And I use the word obsessed deliberately. Obsessed can be a positive word or a negative word. I use it with a positive connotation. I understand a negative connotation of it. So use it from a positive perspective. I use it instead of passionate. And you hear about passion a lot. Be passionate about what you do. Passion is a really, really overused word in the context of entrepreneurship. And in my opinion, it's very easy to fake passion, especially if you're an extrovert or especially if you're good at selling things. It's very hard to fake passion if you're an introvert. And so it creates this very sort of dislocated dynamic where if somebody is focused on passion and you're evaluating things based on the entrepreneur's passion, you will make mistakes as a potential investor or a potential employer or whatever, because that really extroverted, great salesperson entrepreneur is going to be able to sell you anything. Obsession is very hard to fake. When you're obsessed about something, people know it. And the way I like to describe what I mean by obsession is, were you put on this planet to do this thing? And if you were, it comes through no matter what your personality type is, no matter where you are in life, no matter how successful you've been, no matter how early on your journey you're at. In addition, we all you know, have this phenomenon where when you're young, at least I had this phenomenon, you know, when, I'm, when I was young, it felt like life expanded forever in front of me. You know, when I was 12, if somebody said 30 years from now, I didn't know what that meant. Like that was a million years from now. Now that I'm 55, you say 30 years from now, I'm like, I hope I'm here in 30 years. Like that would be cool if I was 85, right? So, you know, time changes as you get older and sort of this view of, wow, it is finite. Mm -hmm. And if you're not obsessed about the thing you're doing, you're not going to have the energy level to sustain yourself through the ups and the downs or the motivation to sustain yourself through the ups and the downs, not just of the business, but of yourself. Because every entrepreneur I've ever met has enormous range of emotion over the life of their business. And it's not a compartmentalization. It, it sort of seeps out to cover everything. Something bad happens in your business you don't just say, okay, well, something bad happens in my business. I'll deal with it tomorrow. Um, it impacts you. It's hard, especially when you're a first-time entrepreneur, it's hard to like separate. Something good happens. You just, wow, something great happened today. And like that obsession keeps you going through those ranges. Passion, by the way, just doesn't. Oh, something bad happened. Eh, I'll go figure something else to do. True. Uh, what you said really resonates with me. As an entrepreneur, you're so much obsessed and all the waking hours you think about your startup. And sometimes you neglect other areas of your life, like sleep, sports, family, and friends. Um, I want to hear your views about mental health and entrepreneurship. It can be lonely. Anxiety and depression is very prevalent amongst startup founders. 
So how do you think uh, we can navigate through this, build successful company and not lose ourselves in the process? It's, it's a very powerful line of inquiry. Um, and I think it's an incredibly important one that even five or six years ago, very few people would even raise. Uh, and I'll just start by saying, um, one of the things uh, that I've learned is that broadly in society, but especially in entrepreneurship, <clears throat> the stigma associated with mental health issues, whether it's anxiety, depression, mania, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, uh, it doesn't matter. The stigma around it is extraordinary, negative. And as a result, many entrepreneurs don't feel the ability to talk about what's going on. They don't feel the, they don't, they deny the reality of that stuff, which by the way, those things touch every one of us, whether it touches you as an individual, um, it, it may not, but it probably touches somebody you're close to, family member, a friend. And I think for many people, if they say, nope, I've never been depressed, I've never struggled with anything, my sense is they're probably denying reality. And, you know, if I could time travel back uh, to my 25-year-old self when I was running that first business, uh, one of the things I would tell my 25-year-old self would be some version of take care of yourself. Um, I was incredibly driven. I spent 100 plus hours a week working. I named my company stupidly. So my whole idea of self was tied up. I thought about it all the time because the name of the company was Felt Technologies. So I was constantly identifying with the company in a way where those things were interwoven and tangled. Um, I prioritized my company over everything, relationships, health. Uh, and in the midst of a successful first business, um, I became very depressed. Um, I had three things happen at the same time that triggered the depression. So when I sort of enough distance from it, time, you know, with, with therapy that I did in that period of time to really understand what was going on, um, deconstruct, not just deconstructing it from the standpoint of intellectually deconstructing it, but getting underneath, you know, what, what was causing my anxiety that then built and turned into depression. Um, it turns out the clinical disorder that I have is obsessive compulsive disorder. So in the early nineties, that was not, it was not well understood. Um, but I was fortunate that I had a psychiatrist who was, who knew it, was aware of it, understood it, was able to deal with uh, help and treatment with it versus sort of treating me for something else. But in that time period, what happened was there were trigger events. I, I had kind of emotionally exhausted myself. <clears throat> and then I had three failures at about the same time that the cumulative failure tipped me into a depression. Those three failures were one, um, my first marriage failed. So I married my high school girlfriend. Again, I'm prioritizing work. 
uh, we didn't have any kids. So I was fortunate in that regard that I have to deal with that. But, you know, it's more like a breakup when you're in your, you know, early mid twenties. But for me, it was a, a profound failure. The second was I got kicked out of a PhD program that I was in. And I got kicked out because I was a crummy PhD student. And I was a crummy PhD student because I was running my business. I was spending no time being a PhD student. I had no business being in a PhD program, but that was a public failure. That was a big deal. Um, and, uh, you know, MIT, to their credit, like to say, no, we didn't kick you out. We, we just asked you to take an indefinite leave of absence. They, I got kicked out. I, 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 I failed. And I had, you know, I'm a precocious kid. I had not failed at things like that. You know, I figured out how to get through academia. And then the third was, even though my business was successful, I was bored. If you go back to the obsession, I, I was just bored. Like, you know, we made money, we had customers, you know, we found new customers, the employees liked each other, we did stuff, like, I didn't care that much. And so you could say, well, that's not a failure. But for me, when I reflect on it, it was part of the input into this thing that then tipped me over into this place in my mid-20s, where I'm like, and the depression was profound. Um, it turned out that I was very functional. So I could, from the time I got to the office to the end of the day, um, uh, or when I went to a client's office or I did something, I was fine. Like when I say I was fine, I wasn't happy. I wasn't effusive. I didn't have sort of emote the natural positive energy that I had, but I could do the work. But it took all of my energy in the morning to get out of bed and get out the door. And when I came home at the end of the day and I was working less hours because I didn't have the energy to keep working as much, uh, I had no energy to do anything. I didn't want to do, I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to go out. I didn't want to hang out with friends. I didn't want to read. I didn't want to watch TV. I just sort of lay on the couch and stare at the ceiling or sit in the bathtub. And, you know, my mind would whirl on whatever I was whirling on. And again, if I could go back to that earlier self, I would have said, take care of yourself, prioritize yourself. This entrepreneurship thing is intense but carve out time for you, whatever that means. Now for me today in my mid fifties, what that means is I'm, I'm a long distance runner. I love to run alone in the mountains. Uh, I read a lot, uh, I like to write. So I use writing as a time for myself, even though I write a lot for public consumption, whether it's blog posts or books or whatever. And then I spend a lot of time with my wife, Amy. Like those are my, those are my things. There are other things that I do socially, but like if I'm not doing those things, I'm not nurturing myself. It's very hard for me to sustain any kind of obsession about work. The other thing I would say is I've seen so many entrepreneurs. When I, I got, I've had multiple depressive episodes as an, as an adult, and I, I was very open. I was not open about them in my 20s and 30s. Huge amount of stigma. I was ashamed. I was ashamed of seeing a psychiatrist. I was ashamed of taking medication. I was ashamed that I was depressed. I was ashamed that I had OCD. I was ashamed that I had a clinical, you know, anxiety disorder. Like, well, why? Well, why was I ashamed of that? I was ashamed of that because the stigma was so high. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a leader. People have to follow me. I have to be strong. I have to be confident. I can show no weakness. You know, let's go. Well, you know, you don't feel that way. It's very hard to act that way. And it actually creates this negative feedback loop over time. 
that when the depression hits, when something happens, you get fired as CEO, your business fails, relationship breaks up, a family member dies, you get a serious illness on the negative side, or even on the positive side, you sell your business for a bunch of money, but then you leave the company and you don't have the identity of working for the company anymore. Um, you know, you have a kid and now all of a sudden your life is different in terms of the texture of what's important to you. You don't have the reserves for that if you haven't sort of dealt with your own reality. And as in my late 40s, I was, I had a very deep depressive episode and I was very public about it. I was blogging at this point. So I blogged about it and wrote about it a bunch and talked about it. Jerry Colonna, who I mentioned earlier, um, also has, was very open. This is in 2013. So he talked about his own struggles. And it was a time period where several well-known entrepreneurs um, in, within a 12-month period had committed suicide. And it was kind of shocking to the system. Like, oh my God, these people committed suicide. And they weren't, they weren't older. They were in their 20s. And maybe both of them were in their 20s, the two that I'm thinking of. And they, you know, people loved them and they were well regarded and they were just in excruciating emotional pain. One of them's business was failing. The other one was in, you know, significant, had significant legal stresses, tons of support from people, loved, but sort of were not able to deal with this stigma, with, with this dynamic. From that point forward, when I was open, I probably talked to a hundred entrepreneurs whose names listeners would recognize. Again, talk to people, ask some questions, learn from it. And in this case, many of them reached out to me. And in a lot of cases, I was the first person they were talking to about their own struggles. And along the way, I met some remarkable people. Paul English would be a good example of somebody who's a Boston-based entrepreneur. He's the founder of Kayak. There's a magnificent book um, uh, that Tracy Kidder wrote about Paul and Paul's story. Um, and it's something called a dump truck of money or getting hit by a dump truck of money. And it, it's not about Paul's biography. It's about Paul's struggle with bipolar disorder as an entrepreneur. Incredibly brave of Paul to let somebody like Tracy Kidder, who's one of the best ethnographers in the world, like the books that Tracy has written over the years is incredible. Kind of go that deep on this. But for me, what it translated to with many of these conversations was, and again, these are name brand entrepreneurs who are incredibly successful, who have long periods of time where they struggle and literally can't talk to anybody or don't feel like they can talk to anybody because of the stigma associated with it. Now, I think in the last four or five years, the stigma has started to lift. There are entrepreneurs like you doing things about it. There are conversations like this where people are willing to talk about it and willing to be, you know, expose themselves and be vulnerable about their own experiences. There's much, much more sort of support and infrastructure. We just went through a generational, or maybe not just a generational, but a hundred plus year crisis with the COVID crisis. You know, that was extraordinary. And there's no denying the impact on huge swaths of society in terms of their mental health. Like we were not designed as human beings to sit in rooms all day long and talk to screens. Some people like it, but most people are just, you know, a year of being deprived of social interaction and the things that you love to do uh, takes a toll. A year of being in the same space with your family members, even if you love your family members, 
uh, impacts each person in different ways that are not all positive. And so I feel like we're in a better place in society, especially around entrepreneurship, but we still have a really, really long way to go um, in terms of understanding that taking care of yourself as an entrepreneur and really as a human, but especially as an entrepreneur is a foundational component of success and taking care of yourself means something different for each person. Thank you so much, Brad, for sharing your story and insights. It's been an absolute pleasure. And just before you go, can you please share with our audience where they can keep up with your ongoing work and reflections? Sure. Uh, best place to find me is feld.com, F-E-L-D.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at bfeld, uh, although I, I follow no one and only broadcast tweets. Um, so if you're interested in what I'm writing, that's a place to follow. Um, but uh, the best place for everything that I do is feld.com. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Victoria. Thanks for having Thanks. me. Thanks for tuning in to the Mind Tales Collective. If there were any questions that stood out to you, don't let these conversations stop here. Share your thoughts with your family and friends or send over a quick message to us on Instagram to share your thoughts with us. And don't forget to hit the follow button. You can find us at Mindtales Official. We know it's been a tough year. We want to remind you to check in on how you're feeling and ask for help if you need it. Remember, self-care is more than a band-aid. Your mental health is important. Stay tuned for more content next week. Take care and talk to you soon.